Good morning, everyone. It is early here in the Pacific West, wherever I am. Michael, how are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? Hi, Lisa. Amazing. Hi. I feel like I haven't seen you in so long, but I'll see you in a couple weeks. Yes. Uh, office hours here on Friday morning early. We have uh, an extraordinary guest, but more a timely extraordinary guest, uh, CEO of FAIR and author of Turnaround. And, you know, there's certain words that you don't think of over the last 18, 19 months. Uh, and that was just one that I hadn't thought about. But, oh, my goodness, you know, how important is that word today? Um, your book came out uh, or will be out this October and it will be about time to turn about. And so what inspired you uh, to write the book Turnaround? Well, I first appreciate being on the show with you all today. Thank you so much. And I agree with you that uh, truly, as we enter into the next few months, we are looking at a situation where multiple people are going to be going through turnarounds or they're going to be facing complex decisions that perhaps they've never faced before. I told one person that I feel right now with the Delta variant that I have one foot in the pool and one foot on the concrete. And I'm not sure, are we diving in? Are we not diving in? What are we doing? Uh, so I was inspired to write the book because I was contacted at the very beginning of the shutdown by a publisher, Idea Press Publishing. And I had other ideas as to what I might write a book about. And they said, no, they said, this is going to be really relevant. And you've done turnarounds. I've, I've been turnarounds in business, philanthropy, and government. And so my experience is broad and being able to provide people with hope, uh, with some empathy, as well as very specific tactics on how they can manage a complex turnaround, uh, whether it's large or small, uh, seem to be important. That's fantastic. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. What is, you know, when we talk about turnarounds, what's the key to a successful one, right? Because there has to be an acknowledgement that things have to happen and an, an action that takes place. But what's the key to making sure that it's successful? In some cases, it's getting the organization to a steady state, right? There could be an organization that's gone through a lot of churn, and the issue that it may have might be financial, it might be personnel, it could be the community in which it's evolved, it's erupting for some reason. There are a wide variety of issues. And so what you're trying to do is at least stabilize 75% of the organization. I'll tell you that during COVID, you know, I've, I've been doing a turnaround, and there is always going to be that moment of that sort of last 15% that you you just can't seem to get there, but nobody's going to be at 100%. But what you've got to do is build in stability so that you can go through the next inflection point, that you have predictable processes, and you have decision-making that allows you to pivot at any point in time. And pivoting at this point in time with COVID, with the various variants, uh, with the international geopolitical dynamics that are going on right now, I think we're going to be in a nonstop phase of pivoting and complex uh, decision-making. And so I hope my book helps. And I'm sure it will. You know, 2020 was a year of reflection. I said that 2021 would be a year of decisions and your book fits right into that as the decisions get more complex. One of the things uh, that I suggest to people to do with all the uncertainty and rethinking that needs to go around in order to make a turnaround is to look within themselves, right? Stop worrying about uh, the complete chaos of uncertainty, which always exists. It may not seem to be as severe, but there is no certainty. Uh, I always tell people, if you could call me today and tell me what's going to happen tomorrow, for sure, I know how to make billions of dollars. I'll give it all away. But, you know, please call me if you know and you're certain what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, there's two types of people, Lisa. There's ignorant people 
and ignorant people. Uh, and there really is, right? Nobody knows what the hell they're talking about and nobody knows what they don't know. So there's either humble, ignorant people or uh, arrogant, humble people that think they know everything and will tell you exactly what's going to happen with crypto and NFTs and, you know, the po political, geo, atmospheric, whatever. But turning around is different because it requires you to look at your mindset, your heart set, skills, knowledge, and desire. What are some of the things that you suggest in your book as we look within in order to create the best decisions for our own turnaround? Well, you know, I have the four-step process, which is visualize the future. If you could paint your magic wand, exactly what would you want the world to look like? And then you need to go and break down the past. And what I mean by that is what you've just mentioned, which is you need to break down the processes, the systems, but you're really trying to get to what we call the underlying cause of the disease. There's something, there's that thing there, and it may be completely unexpected that's actually serving as the boulder. And so as you're building your path from the past to the future, and you want to do that with speed, agility, and confidence. But the most important thing is with heart. And to, to emphasize what you've just mentioned, there are ignorant people and then there, there are people with hubris and there are a lot of people out there. You know, you don't know everything. You are working with the team. And one thing that you'll, you'll know about me, people can see on my posts, they'll see in the book. I don't claim success comes from me. What I claim success comes from is this team that we are in it together. And, you know, I use my pool analogies, but honestly, we're just all linking at arms and we're going to dive in. There's a point where you have to dive in together and then you have to understand what the dynamics are of each conversation and what impact they have on people. You cannot avoid making hard decisions that will impact someone and and will impact someone that you like a lot, but it's the manner in which you treat them through every step, because there are a lot of good people right now that are getting caught in crossfires. And what you want to do is acknowledge where that person is, acknowledge the fact that perhaps there is nothing about them personally. It's just not working right now in this situation and stay in contact with them, help them through their next stage, help good people move forward while focusing your energies and getting your organization to exactly where it needs to be. Lisa, how do you accomplish that when you're operating at the level which you are, right? You have four U.S. presidents, uh, two governors, four, countless Fortune 500 CEOs. You're working with some high-level people, presumably with some pretty tremendous egos at times. You want to come to a place from the heart. How do you balance that? How do you get that breakthrough to achieve what you want to achieve? You know, I'm a floor walker. And during COVID, what I have done is I have scheduled quarterly one-on-ones with my entire staff. And so everybody gets 15 to 20 minutes on my um, on Zoom with me. And we really spend time understanding what decisions we've made and how they've impacted them each quarter. Because we're making, there, there's so much churn right now and we're making such critical decisions. And what you don't want is to lose touch with the voice of the person who's in the organization. And so- being a floor walker is really important. And what it does for you is when you're talking to a high level board or a billionaire and a CEO, which I've done on many occasions, you have your data, you speak with facts. One thing I learned from Craig Barrett, the CEO of Intel is always speak with facts. You want to have quantitative data, you want to have quantitative goals, but you also want to mention the human aspect because they need to bring it down and understand for example, when we make this decision, I want you to make the decision knowing these are the dominoes that are going to fall. Are you comfortable with that? And different people react in different ways. You know, Lisa, beyond your book, uh, which is so timely, 
you're also the CEO of FAIR, uh, which uh, for me really focuses on in your mission, what's most important today, which so many people overlook, uh, which is our health. I like to say that, you know, when we're healthy, we get millions of wishes a day, which is the most valuable thing you can have, these wishes. Uh, but if you're unhealthy, you only have one wish. Um, and your mission to increase the quality of life and health through food allergies and other such things. How have you been able to utilize your own turnaround philosophies uh, within the context of, you know, the greatest pandemic uh, in our lifetime, the only pandemic of our lifetime uh, to change the face or turn around your own company? Well, we when I got started at FAIR, it was a turnaround situation in 2018. I walked in and we and I knew I was going to have to do a restructure. And we ultimately did an 83% restructure, but we did 49% in the first 40 days, as well as restructured the entire board. So oh, I knew what I, I was walking one into. Thing, in, in honor of Craig Barrett, I have to say one thing. 99% of all statistics are made up. <laughs> oh, you should hear the conversations Craig and I had about statistics at different points in time. Uh, but uh, but Craig, on the other hand, had a lot of statistics about. Yeah, that's why I, made, I, I actually said that to him because <laughs> he was like, "I'm a quantitative guy," so I was like, "Wait a second, man, where uh, are the facts? 100 percent of the things you get done, 100 percent of the things you get done, get done though." So with um, the organization, we established a five-year plan and we have literally stuck to that plan. I think having that plan with a lot of specificity as to how we needed to grow the foundational elements that would support acceleration of innovation to the patient for a disease that really had no solutions. When I walked in, there was absolutely no therapy in market for anyone with food allergy. And so we broke down a plan that had very specific pillars to it, and we have stuck to executing it. And I'll tell you, that gives a lot of uh, firmness to the organization. I literally, and Craig would love this, I whip out the five-year plan that had different stages at it, and I show everyone where every action that we're taking is, is fitting within the context of what we said we were going to do. And I think I, I always tell people, we're working with other people's money. Every organization I've run with, we're, we're working with other people's money. If you're in the government, we're working with the taxpayer's money. If you are uh, in a not-for-profit, you're working you know, with the donor's money. You need to fulfill the intent of that donation. And they gave it to you for a reason. So you need to stick with the plan. And, um, and you need to recognize why people gave you this, these funds. You were a steward. You're a temporary steward in a long game. And so by continuously having that as a reminder, we have been able to accelerate some really game-changing research and activities that will could literally uh, blow the door open on food allergies in the next three years. We've got three things under works that if they pan out um, in the next three years, they would actually completely change the, the dynamic for both food allergy families and managing their allergies. And secondarily, we could actually see a monumental drop in children developing food allergies. That's, that's incredible. That's exactly what I was going to ask about, Lisa. And I don't know if you can reveal uh, without revealing too much, but, and for our listeners, FARE, F-A-R-E, correct? Yes. Um, is the organization. Uh, what, what are some of those treatments? We see so many of these food-related allergies now. We hear about gluten allergies. You know, when I was a kid, there was no gluten allergy. Everybody ate everything, but now perhaps, you know, because of the way food is being processed, certain people are unable to process it. I don't know. Are there things that you can tell us about specifically the treatments on how you'll improve people's lives? 
Absolutely. And uh, the first thing is you need to train their immune system. For children, we are uh, launching a research project called SEED, Start Eating Early Diet. And what we are doing is introducing allergens, eight allergens to babies between four and six months old for a two-year period of time, early and often. We did that already through a fair-funded project called the LEAP study. And the LEAP study five years ago showed that by feeding babies with eczema, and eczema is a comorbidity with food allergies, it's a disease that you have two of the same diseases at the same time, they complement each other, uh, we were able to see a precipitous drop in children developing peanut allergies. Now we're testing that with eight allergens, but it's all about training your immune system. So you've mentioned other things, which is uh, gluten sensitivities and, um, and really a big difference. You have to always clarify is the difference between sensitivities and life-threatening food allergies or celiacs, which is something that can also yeah. send people into the hospital. But we've become very, very clean. And one thing I have a fear about during COVID is that we're not training our immune systems because we are wearing masks and we are drowning ourselves in Purell. That could end up having unintended consequences. The other thing that FAIR is doing is that we launched a $3 million competition called the Faith Challenge. And what the Faith Challenge is focused on doing is replacing what's called the Oral Food Challenge, which is a sort of old-fashioned 1920s type of test. It works and the doctors know it works, but it's a very comprehensive and time-consuming test with biomarkers. And so we have 15 right now uh, teams from around the United States uh, who've started the first level of, I mean, from around the world. We've got people from Tokyo and Israel and UK uh, who are competing to create a biomarker that would enable us to test the severity of someone's uh, food allergy. And that would enable us to understand in the scheme of things, you're talking about 32 million people, where they all fall. Once we have a breakdown as to where the activation points are for the severity of their disease, we can be very precise in our therapeutic solutions. And so that's another huge game changer for us. And the last one is standardizing on labeling. Uh, there are 40 different what we call precautionary allergen labels in market. So you pull up a package of something from General Mills, and then you pull it up from Kellogg, and you pull it up from Kroger, and you look at that cereal, none of the precautionary allergen labeling is the same. And so people are avoiding buying foods that they could afford because they don't understand what's in them. And that during COVID was really problematic because people couldn't find foods that they normally ate that were safe for them. And so we are focused on just standardizing the protocols for how you tell the consumer whether or not there's an allergen in the food that they're about to buy. And by doing so, uh, that would change the lives of 85 million Americans who are avoiding those um, proteins uh, due to food allergies and food intolerances. Well, thank you so much, uh, both on the Turnaround book. As you see right there, you can find it at turnaroundbook.com. And also for all that you're doing with FAIR in all aspects of our lives, people like you are well respected, but most of all needed. We appreciate you. Thanks for joining us on Office Hours. Thank, Thank you, you so Lisa. much for having me, especially so early in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having I can't take credit. It's not that early over here, Dave. I, I know. Honest. That's all right. Some people, you get all the credit for that one. For some people it is. You know. Yeah, people that's true. Out, people that went out drinking on Thursday night in New York. Uh, it's <laughs> it's early. Yeah, 8.15 is early. So that's anyway, true. we have Mark, Mark Cushing here, and he is the founding partner and CEO of the Animal Policy Group. Also the author, uh, and he, Pat Nation, the inside story of how companion animals are transforming our homes, culture, and economy. And that's coming out here in a few weeks on my dear friend's birthday, September 21st, uh, which he was blessed to have his twins on September 21st. And why September 21st such an 
interesting day, Mark, to me. Um, I got to play Augusta on September 21st, <laughs> and I invited my friends whose birthday was September 21st, and he had his twins like four weeks early. On September, he could not go to the Masters with me, which you know is awful enough. But here's the worst thing that most people don't think of. Last minute cancellation to, to play at Augusta. I'm sorry, not the Masters, obviously. Uh, to play Augusta, last minute decision. Who do you invite? Because you're going to lose a lot of friends when they find out, you know, that you invited Steve instead of Mark instead of Mike. Uh, so I decided that whoever would donate the most money uh, to my charity, uh, I would take. And so I put it back onto them. Anyway, September 21st is a <laughs> great day in my life, and I'm sure it'll be equally in yours. Um, <laughs> I, I've got to start with a book um, because I think people have underestimated the power of our pets uh, until the pandemic. Um, I, I truly think that pets have saved so many people's lives and, you know, increased their, their mental stability, uh, just having someone there to comfort them um, in the isolation that so many of us went through. Uh, what is that story of companionship, you know, beyond the pandemic? of how it has affected our homes, our culture, and our economy. Well, first, I got to congratulate you on September 21, because that's also fall equinox, which is a great memory for me. When I started at Stanford, I went to Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, you know, 18-year-old from a hick town in Oregon, didn't know anything, and uh, saw Grace Cathedral. I mean, I saw uh, Jefferson Airplane in Grace Cathedral. Uh, you know, life's good. You know, I, they weren't playing in my town, uh, if I recall before, so... Congratulations. Hope you played well. Uh, I, you know, it didn't matter, does it? It didn't it matter, right? <laughs> so what COVID did, just to your good point, uh, COVID took it from maybe fourth or fifth gear, one up to fifth or sixth gear. Um, underway in the story of the book is that in the last 20 years, so in a generation, basically baby boomers going from kids to adults with their own children, um, Americans discover the human animal bond. They didn't go to a bookstore, get a book and read it and go, I'm going to go buy a pet. But facts are, if you engage with a pet, your oxytocin level goes up and your cortisol level goes down. Cortisol, stress, anxiety, kind of bad things. Oxytocin is relaxation, happiness, calm. And uh, people figured that out. And they did because pets had come inside. If you just see your dog for 10 minutes a day and you come home in your backyard or you take him for a quick walk, not much happens. And generation had experienced that. And you began to see pets inside. And then people decided figuratively to take dogs right out the front door everywhere in America. And the whole chapter is devoted to the fact that what I call the pet land grab, because if you're in New York, I mean, when you go down the sidewalk now, someone has six Great Danes. And they don't they don't go out in the street and let you walk by. It's like your issue to deal with it. You know, it's like they're every bit there as much as you are. And uh, it was interesting. And, and the other thing, since, you know, as you're a great media uh, leader, a lot of it was how television began to portray pets when boomers were kids and Gen Xers were kids. And they began to see pets in this very different way. You know, it starts with Lassie, who's author, by the way, the the woman that created Lassie knew Charles Dickens. So it kind of goes back, you know, a hell of a long time. But uh, uh, you began to see that. And for me, and I remember the moment I watched it, it was a Subaru commercial and, and Nissan did the same thing. Um, and it showed a car on a California coastal highway, which is, you know, classic Vista for a car commercial. Right. And all the commercials showed 
was a retriever smiling with its head out the window, driving along the highway. And I was trying to picture the CEO of Subaru getting that ad shown to him six months earlier. You know, what's the campaign next year? And they show the ad and he's like, well, wait a second. You know, what's the engine mileage? You know, when are we going to start talking about the car? And the ad ad guy had incredible courage to say, "Um, that's the ad. It's people seeing a dog with your brand. And I remember watching that, uh, Dave, and going, something's going on here that you could sell a car. Well, now now it's so common, right? I mean, you just see cats too, but mainly dogs, you know, about 40% of commercials in some way show a dog. And and you're just happy to see it. Hyundai did that great holiday commercial two years ago of five Hyundais from tallest to smallest lined up. And in front of them were five dogs, tallest to smallest. And they didn't care if you looked at the car. In fact, they didn't want you to. They just wanted you to look at a dog for 30 seconds and feel good and go, oh, it was Hyundai, right? Um, and there were probably you know 10,000 dogs named Hyundai that year uh, because they enjoyed the commercial. So those combinations happen. And then you began uh, with social media to kind of complete the, the, the triangle. People became their own film producers, right? You know, you no longer saw babies on Facebook or Instagram. It became pets and nothing but pets. And wherever you were, if you could see a 20 second video of some cat doing something, you stopped, you showed your friends, you're, you know, you re, repurposed uh, and you booted it yourself and sent it around. Um, and all that kind of came together. I mean, honestly, and it was a struggle each step as people push the boundary to go, are we really doing this? And what we figured out, and I'll, I'll let you ask your next question. Is, and I'm a lawyer, so you got to watch out. You can get the microphone. Right? <laughs> oh, we got three. We got three of us here. Outstanding. I mean, you know, the the profession of all professions, right? Look, look how much fun we're having. Um, <laughs> not, not practicing law. You know, we all love pet. We all love pets. So but uh, no, it's 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 been really interesting. So um, and the what happened then was the culture and society of pets got ahead of the service industry, the supply industry, the veterinarians and all that, they weren't ready for it. So I've spent a lot of my last 10, 15 years pushing and helping to push an industry to catch up with what people want because it's not a fad. Millennials now own and Gen Z's own 60% of pets. Okay. And they don't have one dog, they have two. And a lot of what happened in in COVID, uh, David, was people that had one dog said, you know, let me get another one. I'm going to be home for a while. We, we thought maybe three months, you know, hopefully not three years, but, uh, you know, and so that surge just pushed demand. So you now have an economy and, and, and you're so focused on business and business success. The pet economy went from about 70 billion in the U S to 110 billion now. And Morgan Stanley just came out and said, it's going to be 325 in about eight years. I mean, we're, we're talking about tripling it. And so wall street and, private equity firms came flooding in the last two to three years, watching what happened, probably enjoying it themselves, you know, at home, if they ever got a chance to go home and said, there's something going on here. It's not just a cute fad that we'll, you know, say goodbye to in a year. Man, I love so much of what you said, Mark. And I I had a question. And then once you mentioned that we're all attorneys without, you know, I'm not threatening to ask too much of a legal question. I said, let me ask a separate question that's related to what you're saying, because it's something that's been on my mind. Now that's so much, we we recognize so much of the relationship between pets and human beings. And it's, I mean, you can see it, you can feel it in anyone that's ever experienced it. Are we any closer legally? Because we've seen it, you know, in the media, we've seen it politically, social experiences. My understanding is that the law still recognizes pets as chattel and, and for 
people that don't know what chattel is, it's like a lamp or it's like this right. this mug. It's just a piece of property. And if something happens to your pet, well, it's tough kind of, but it's dealt with the same way as any other piece of property. Now that we're recognizing, you you know, if you've ever experienced, and I'm sure you have, somebody who's lost a dog, it's like it's a member of the family. Are we any closer? Are we doing anything or getting any closer to having the law recognize this, how important this is to us as a species? First of all, it, it's been so long since somebody said chattel in public. I, I, I just I'm, I'm yes. grateful that we uh, we got that word back into currency. That's you yes. hey, Mark, you didn't go to Stanford Law School. Where'd you go to law school? I went to law school. I went to Stanford, went back to Willamette in, uh, Law School in Oregon. So can my, you explain? My, my yeah, no, great school. Can you uh, explain the rules of perpetuity before you? No, <laughs> you know, I, I black rock and white rock. I yeah. I nailed that on the Texas bar exam and the Oregon bar exam, and and like everything in the bar exam, I forgot it. You know, an hour later, after a good couple of beers and going, great, that's over. <laughs> yeah. Back to the chattel question, and, and uh, I had the great uh, foresight to major in Stanford in medieval and Renaissance history, which you, you know I really pick a trend, don't I? Yeah. Um, but uh but anyway it's easier, easier to get in applying to that instead of eco- economics right there you go uh so the common law you're right so the common law of england which you know came across with the mayflower if you will and all states but louisiana adopted it um treats pets as personal property and so it's a shock to people if if you had if you know back in the there was a, a pet food recall about 10 years ago you guys are too young to remember right but uh Class actions filed everywhere, and you know, plaintiffs lawyers, you know, they don't want a third of two million or two thousand bucks. They want a third of a lot bigger dollar, right? And so uh, they discovered this rule, and they thought, well, we'll blow right through it. But I'm paid, and I've spent 15 years not changing that rule. Just full disclosure here, because of one one impact. You change that rule, and anybody who loses a pet for negligence or whatever gets full emotional damages. You drive veterinary costs through the roof. And the reason you do is because of what? Defensive medicine. You know that, Mike. You have yeah. lawyers lawyers coaching doctors. Okay, here are the 15 tests you need to run. Because when you're on the witness stand and this David Meltzer guy asked you the question, did you do test number 13? And you said, uh, no, actually, I didn't. It's over. You know, that yeah. test becomes the only thing that could have cured and prevented it. Yeah. So it's been an interesting issue. And no one's changed it. New York State Senate Judiciary Committee this year passed out a bill that would do that in New York. Not not a small state, right? Um, it may come back in April or excuse me, in, in January in, in 2022. So we'll s- see the issue again. But I remind people, if your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your favorite aunt and uncle, your grandparents, your brother is injured due to negligence or killed, you don't get to file a lawsuit. It's child or spouse. Yeah. So we've made a policy decision, which that there's only so much money in America to cover, cover everybody, quote, who loses something of value. And that's a harsh way to put yeah. it as a lawyer. But in fact, you have to draw the line, you draw the line. So even the bluest of blue states, California, a good example, Vermont, have reaffirmed the rule in the last five to 10 years. And everybody wondered if they would. So I the pressure's on, though, and I cover that in the book, that the pressure's on. You're going to see more attempts not just because the plaintiff's bar has discovered pets, but just the, the natural thing. You walk into yeah. a vet clinic and it says, we treat your pets as family, except when you sue us, it's a chair, you know, or, or, or a cup. Yeah. So. 
But it also will, you know, completely ruin our carpool lane. So keep up the big fight. Line of the day. Well, we're already, pre- you know, the, the law that's going to overturn Roe v. Wade will be, you know, the, the woman that was one month pregnant uh, and, you know, is fighting saying that uh, she deserved to be in the carpool lane. That that will be the case uh, that overturns it if, if the Supreme Court decides to do that ever. Um, no political judgment on anyone as I try to that, that, certain things on my show I won't even touch. Roe v. Wade will be one I will mention but won't touch. I'll I let you two handle that one. Yeah. I'll stick the chattel. That, yeah, that's... let's kick the chattel in our, in our pants. Um, you know, and, and coming from the lawyer that went to Tulane, so I'm the only one that knows civil code and studied maritime law. And we'll, we could talk about charter parties even after the chattel in the rules of perpetuity. Uh, <laughs> um, last thing, strategic advice, though, on a business uh, side, you know, obviously we will experience extreme growth. Um, where do you see the best uh, investment in the sector? Uh, you know, is it organic food for dogs? Is it, you know, some sort of care uh, or where, where, where's the, the biggest sector that we should be looking at? I think it's it, uh, food's important. Royal Canin's a client of mine. It's a Mars uh, brand, you know, biggest in the world, but the margins aren't quite as attractive uh, from an investor standpoint. Uh, uh, it's clearly in something related to pet healthcare. Yeah. The reason being millennials have said, I want the same level of healthcare, same quality, same scale as I get as a person. And that that's, that's revolutionary in the pet world and I'll pay for it. And as you know, Pet healthcare is a cash business. So, you know, it, it's not, you know, there's not a lot of risks there. And I think you, you have a veterinary model, David, that's came out of the 70s and 80s. Drop your pet off at my clinic. I'm the vet. I'll decide. I'll get back to you. And millennials are like, no, I, I want to use this. I want to call you. I want to call somebody whenever I need to. And I want you to advise me what I do with my pet because I want to manage that the way I manage my own healthcare. And P.S., I'll pay for it. So vets never believe that. Veterinarians are like, no one's going to pay me. And I said, wait a minute, lawyers don't pick up a phone <laughs> and not start the meter. So, you know, it, you know it's not going to shock people. Yeah. And you've seen 50 to 60 PE firms come into the pet healthcare market, and they're already flipping in consolidation and then the consolidation of the consolidators. So you're really seeing a lot of dynamic there. And then diagnostics, companies like IDEX, uh, you're seeing a lot of movement of what? Human healthcare strategies, technologies, service delivery models moved into the pet world, always with some resistance, skepticism. And then suddenly it's like, why didn't I do that? Let's do it bigger and faster. So I, I think that's clear to the market I'd, I'd, I'd pay most attention to. Thank you so much, Mark. Founding partner and CEO of the Animal Policy Group and the author of Pet Nation. You can join him at Mark L. Cushing. Dot com. Thank you. Let's have you back and we'll talk some more law. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Take care, guys. Take Bye-bye. care. What a great guest. Yeah. He's you know, I, I love the fact that we get, you know, just a whole, it's like uh, Forrest Gump, right? A box of chocolates in here and you never know what you're going to get. That That's one, right. I did. That one, looking at what we were doing, I, I didn't expect, but just some great money advice there, uh, yeah. knowing the, the numbers. Uh, so Staggering anyway, numbers. We're, we're in for a big treat because I do know what we have uh, coming in store for us now with my friend, Mark, Mark. Frank. I, uh, X2 Performance is something that I use. Um, is that a Chargers hat behind you, by the way? 
Is that a Chargers helmet? It, yeah, it's a Ladanian uh, Tomlinson helmet. All right. So, like I said, we, we uh, are just so grateful to have Mark on here uh, with one of my favorite players behind him in that helmet. Anyway, X2 is the healthiest of energy drinks. Uh, it's a program, actually. It's not, you know, just one drink. Um, and, you know, uh, Mark, I want to start off by you have uh, an L- NLP uh, ventured portfolio. Um, you uh, have been involved in this space for a long time like I have. What have you learned that you put into this product? Because, you know, it's like none other. Um, I can, first time I use it, I could see a difference. And that's in the pre-workout and workout uh, formula that you have. But but what what makes, you know, it's so competitive. You, you know, I try stuff. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everyone's in love with their product. Let's just put it that way. Yours is actually different. What makes it different and it actually works? Yeah, and first and foremost, David and Mike, thanks for having me. Uh, it's hey, great Mike. to be here. Great to talk. Um, you know, I started with X2 actually as a board member. And uh, I think a previous guest, David, that you had, very close friend of mine, Mike Tenenbaum, former yeah, GM of the Jets. Law school buddy uh, of mine. And, and uh, just a phenomenal front office executive. Also a mutual friend who was on the board of X2. He discovered X2, at least from my perspective, when he was the GM of the New York Jets. And he saw all these X2 cans and shots in the locker room after a win and went straight to the strength and conditioning coach and said, hey, what is this stuff? Right. Um, Because at that level, you have to ensure things are clean and safe for your athletes. Fast forward, he's with the Dolphins, sees it again. And now he's intrigued. Right. So Mike and I were talking a few years back. Um, told me that L. Catterton, who you guys are obviously uh, well aware of, if anyone in the audience isn't, probably the largest consumer goods private equity group. So investments in Peloton, Tonal Hydro, early in vitamin water. They also were early investors in X2 because it was actually a patented formula and was really disrupting in the energy sector because it was all focused around clean, healthy ingredients. And it worked, right? So that's why all these pro trainers were giving it to its athletes. The challenge was no one had heard of it. So it was really a B2B play since inception um, with a limited distribution. And that's when Mike and El Ketterton asked me, hey, would you help us figure out how to fix the packaging, the branding and and take it to market? So I started as a board member um, like you, just use the product. Wow, this stuff really works. Shared it with a a lot of my friends in the in the sports community, so other pro athletes, hey, just tell me what you think of this. Wow, this stuff really works. So for me, I knew there was a, a great product, which is always the hardest thing to solve. And the thought was, can we commercialize? And then we were fortunate uh, to learn, you know, Kawhi Leonard was a fan and using the product uh, along with all these other athletes. Um, so we worked on building a partnership, bringing Kawhi Leonard into the fold. Uh, then CVS looked at what we had Uh, at a very high strategic level through their innovation group. And it checked a lot of critical boxes for them with their natural clean ingredients for the whole portfolio. So the powders, the shots, and the drinks. And we were extremely fortunate. They said, we want to launch this nationally. So with that, and then GNC also agreeing to launch some of our pre-workout stuff. Uh, The team at El Catterton, the rest of the board and I agreed, you know, let me lean in right now and uh, looks to take this thing to market. Been really fortunate that other amazing athletes like Saquon Barkley also recently invested. Uh, We just announced that another avid user of ours, now a partner, 
uh, Peloton superstar Kendall Tool just joined us. So the the messaging has been we've got you know this unbelievable product that's been tested and trusted by over twenty five pro teams. We're backed by elite athletes. These are investors. And David, you know that's been kind of my playbook with previous ventures, not endorsers, but real partners around the table, thinking through product innovation, skin in the game. So Saquon, Levante, David, obviously coming off his Super Bowl win. They were using X2 last season. Kawhi, now Kendall, we're backed by the best athletes. And now we're really focused on taking that clean, healthy energy and bringing it to what we call the everyday athlete. So Kendall really helps us bridge that, but any consumer that, you know, is the label reader, someone that's reading the label, probably new to the energy category, wasn't drinking the other products because of the negative side effects, whether that's the shakes and the jitters, or they don't want all those false stimulants. And and that's kind of where we're at. And uh, it was really just focused on, okay, how do we build a brand? How do we tell the story? How do we surround ourselves with great partners on the retail side, the athlete partner side? and now distribution partners. Um, but that's really what drew me was I knew there was a great product thought if I surround ourselves with the right teammates, uh, we think we could disrupt. And, and I think we can, we're seeing it firsthand that nobody's really kind of broken through with that clean, healthy energy, right? There are things that are zero sugar, but they're full of stuff that's not good for you. And then to have a real narrative that this is the stuff that the athletes are actually drinking. Uh, before games and workouts, uh, I think we'll carve out a nice little niche for ourselves. Absolutely agree with you, Mark. Nice to see you again. Hello. As, as you know, huge fan of X2. What when? <clears throat> and yeah, it, it, you predicted my question. I think of talking about the everyday athlete. We know that you work with the elites, transitioning that into the everyday athlete, and even beyond that, perhaps the people you know who who work in an office and get that three p.m. slump. You know, what, what's happening? How does X2 benefit those people? When's the optimum time for them to drink it and how much and all of that so that they can see the benefits? They might not be winning a Super Bowl, but for them, this is their Super Bowl, right? And they can have the same kind of benefits that the others are uh, expecting and, and getting as a result of it. For sure, Mike. And, and a big reason why these pro teams and athletes have actually gravitated towards a part of the product placement is it's non-carbonated, which is a huge differentiator. Um, and there's a place for carbonation. In fact, we're going to be rolling out uh, additional products that will have some carbonation. So think about it, you know, time of day, like our existing product um, is great for, you know, in the morning, replacing that cup of coffee. We see a lot of people drinking X2 uh, in the morning that want that um, healthy, clean, we call endurance. This isn't the quick spike and then the crash. It's going to get you through sustained. Yeah. sustained. And um, with the non-carbonated, I think a lot of the reasons why trainers and athletes have gravitated towards it, you don't get the bubble and the fizz before you're going to exercise or work out, right? That's why you see Kendall Tool taking it before she's getting uh, on her Peloton to get a class to millions of people. Um, but, you know, time of day, we want to provide products for our customers at all times of day. It's different occurrences. Yeah. But right now, the current line is really focused for um, you know, a, a pre-workout sort of experience or that getting you started sort of momentum. But we will be rolling out a zero sugar line uh, later on this year uh, that we've spent a ton of time developing, uh, but all, always with that natural, clean backbone, which isn't easy to do, by the way. And is that, Dave, Dave, can I jump in with one more question? Yeah. Mark, 
isn't that difficult to do because isn't sugar kind of the crutch that a lot of these energy drinks rely on to get people that boost without realizing that that's what it is. So if you're able to do this in a clean, healthy way, I mean, really going to be powerful. hundred percent. And then you can avoid those crash and jitters. And again, it's not easy to do. And everything we do is baked off that original patent that was created. So having that backbone within that formalization uh, has been really, you know, imperative for where we are now and, and where we're going. So it's all about time of day um, and meeting our consumers for those different occasions. Uh, Mark, last question. Um, and you passed over it really quickly, but it is something that you're really good at. And it's something that so many people approach me, hire me, consult for. And it's the difference between having an athlete endorsement, an athlete ambassador, an athlete investor. You know, I invested, for example, in Overactive Media with Marcus Colston, Meta, you know, Mike and I have invested together, Tannenbaum. You know, you, you subtly said, you, you know my uh, history, David, that, you know, I get those athletes to be investors. How do you do that, right? You know, what is the difference? Why, you know, are there literally millions of companies out there wanting athletes to invest and they're sending them free stuff, they're doing everything they can. And, and there's so many soft endorsements out there uh, that mean nothing. You know, I won't invest. And, and, you know, now that I've built my own media brand, I'm the same way. Like, I don't invest in everything because people just automatically assume they have to give me shares, <laughs> you know. And yeah. so what is what what is that secret sauce? Because you've been doing this with Mission, with Tri Players Tribune. You know, since I've known you, you've been able to get, you know, the biggest stars to put their money in, not just their name. I think it's really a combination of a few things. So first and foremost, it's never just me, right? So if you're investing, you're investing in the company. And I've been really, really fortunate to have great, you know, institutional partners along with us on our different journeys. So one thing that I could tell you, a lot of the amazing athlete partners that I've worked with, they've built amazing partnerships through their investment and are opened up to other deals. So for example, with El Catterton, you're not just investing in X2, this you know startup that's trying to get into a very crowded energy space. There's a ton of backing behind that and infrastructure and support that's going into a company like X2 that gives any investor, not just athletes, but even me, candidly, from the very beginning, comfort that, okay, we got a really smart group that's invested and wants to figure this out. I think, David, the other thing is just you know, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, but it's integrity. And it's like, mm -hmm. let's look at our track record. You know, I started off as a ball boy for the New York Knicks. And I've been so fortunate that a lot of my relationships in sports stem all the way back from my friendship and my mentor, Mark Jackson, who ended up being the head coach of the Golden State Warriors. And now to this day, he's still, you know, calling the ABC primetime games during the NBA finals. So, you know, athletes can check back on other deals that you've done or, or who you are. So I think having those initial relationships and then just driving value along the way. And, and the one thing is also honesty, right? Like this is a startup and I can tell you in every single one of them, it is a roller coaster. There is no magic bullet because Dwayne Wade, Derek Jeter, Serena Williams, Kawhi Leonard, Levant, you know, it, there's no magic bullet. So I try to be very honest up front, like, look, this could go to zero. Right. But we're optimistic and hopeful with the team that we're building. That's not going to be the case, but always want to be upfront and candid. And uh, I think that that matters. 
I, I thought I was the only bad luck ball boy. I was the ball boy <laughs> for the San Diego Clippers. When I remember. I and I, they haven't won a championship uh, since. So uh, we'll, we'll keep them up there. Maybe we'll get a, a Knicks Clippers championship someday. That'd be beautiful. Would it? Yeah, and one of them will win. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Anyway, Mark, it's always great to see you. Say hi to Tannenbaum for me. I you will. Know, ball school buddy, as you know. And uh, just great people involved is what I like about investing in the companies that you're involved with is I love to invest in good people, credibility, honesty, and integrity, not overlooked and great products. So congratulations as always, let us know how we could be of service and come back and visit us. If you ever want to get rid of that LT helmet, I'm all yours, buddy. I appreciate you guys and, and the programming is phenomenal. I can tell you it's helping me and every other entrepreneur. It's giving great thoughts. Guys, appreciate Thank you. you. Talk soon. Thank you, man. Thank Take you, care. buddy. Take care. Bye. What a great entrepreneur. Mark yes. French. Surround yourself with the right people and the right idea. Now, this guy, talk about, you know, good luck and bad luck. He's been doing it since he was 15. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he is an extraordinary caddy, David Kite. I think he was in the the first golf video uh, with uh, in a caddy for Greg Norman even. Yeah. It, that's incredible. And yeah. uh, anyway, just give us a little, David, a little bit of background because – you are now a published author uh, since yep. February 2018. And I've actually read your book uh, on, on an airplane. Uh, oh, and gosh. Re really enjoyed it because, you know, I always wanted to be a caddy. And if you saw my golf game, you would know why. I do <laughs> real, real quick because I know we got training today, but I got to tell you the story. One of my best friends is a professional golfer, and he was in a tournament at the farms in San Diego. So, I'm caddy, caddying for him, and he makes – he basically is in second place, and he kicks me off for a real caddy because he played so well. And because I, I just – I don't know what I'm doing, right? But I kept him loose. I'm a mindset guy. Yeah. You know, and, he, and he's a great golfer. Well, anyway, he brings in a real caddy, and he gets in his own head, and he just blows it. And I always <laughs> joke around with him. You, you, you switch me out. Anyway – Give, give us a, a brief a brief background uh, of your great career. And then, you know, uh, I think you have a question for uh, Mike and I as well. Yeah, look, I, I, David, I, I'm just, yes, yeah, so so grateful to be here. And I'm and, and it really, yeah, look, made me feel so nice when you said I read it. I, and Mike, um, I appreciate your time. Um, yeah, look, I was that 15-year-old kid who used to ride my bike and, and, you know, and they kind of said, oh, look, can you come and um, – you know, caddy for Norman for the day. And it was basically, uh, yeah, me caddying and picking up his balls and the, and basically the cameraman producer and me, you know. And, and so part of, you know, part of my book is like that that was meant to be and, and you know, that was a life journey and, and, and that moment happened for a reason, you know. And, and my funny little one is um, that to just before I got the book done, uh, Greg Norman was opening a course in Melbourne and I was at the, the luncheon and I literally got him back from the toilet and I'm showing him the poster of the original golf video from, you know, 1980. And, you know, I said, Oh, you might remember, but I, I was that kid. And he's like, what are you up to? And I said, well, actually here's my book. Cause I had a, you know, I had the front and back cover at that stage, you know, like the still, uh, you know, from my publisher and I'm like, well, here you go. And so he's about to get into his chopper and fly back to America. And, you know, he's reading my front and back and I, you know, kind of basically, yeah, emailed his people and and they said, yeah, no worries, when do you want it almost? And 
So I kind of wrote it and, and Greg tweaked it and, and I had the foreword from Greg Norman, you know. So, That's you know, awesome. yeah, I feel like that should be running it off the shelves in Australia. But, yeah, not not quite happening, you know. And, and <laughs> as you know, it's just full of stories, you know, and, and my, my year catting in great Europe stories. and all the weird stories, you know. They're great stories and I believe life's about lessons and stories and coincidences by the attention yeah. and intention that you give and continue to give, um, you know, so, uh, but living out of a suitcase, you know, the reason I read it as, as I figured in some respects, I was a caddy traveling 200 days a year, uh, yeah. you know, not performing as an athlete, but as a sports agent uh, into the dodgy hotels and the suitcases course, yeah. that I've lived out of. And I also believe it or not through the stories that you give, there's some great lessons of efficiency because you have traveled so much. Um, and you kind of pick up on to what to look for, you know, different things that can, you know, have a real economic game in your life. Uh, anyway, we got a couple of minutes, so I'd love to to get your question and see if Mike and I can answer it quickly. Um, yeah, it's, it's more about how can I sort of get that brand, you know, awareness say in the States, you know, like I've, I've sent things here to radio stations and, you know, print, uh, you know, can you do a, um, so, like, the Australian Golf Digest has done an article where, you know, they, they've done a review of my book. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of trying to get that sort of that foot in the door to different places to see if I can, you know, sell some more copies. By the way, did it take you about two hours to read it, Dave? Because not really long. <laughs> no, I, I, that's why I read it on the plane. And it on was the short, plane, enough yeah, that, okay. yeah, short enough that I could. And it kept me awake. So that was good. Uh, yeah. Mikey, go ahead. You get a first chop at this and then I'll, I'll hit a home run. Yeah, I'm sure that you will. Hey, good morning. How are you? Nice to see you, David. <clears throat> nice to meet you, Mike. You know, I would look at all of the opportunities that technology is affording us now, specifically not just the traditional social media platforms, but Clubhouse and things where you can build groups and networks and rooms of people that are yeah. really specifically interested in this space. And obviously, you know, all of the traditional things that you're doing is good, but it's the old adage of, you know, be, be the flower rather than the bee instead of going out and trying to get this one, this one, this one. You have the flower, right? You are the flower. You are, you have the book. Let everybody start yeah. coming to you, set your stake yeah. and let them start coming to you to learn from it. Great, okay. Mikey. And I'm going to go to my Shakespearean days to thy own self be true. And the whole world is your stage two different uh, pieces of work by Shakespeare, but you have an extraordinary opportunity to use the stage theory. So you should be capturing, when they write articles in America on you, you should be capturing that with a funny video or picking out the story and explaining the article and capturing that on video, modifying it for all platforms, amplifying it through all the different people that you've caddied for to put out to theirs and then create a perpetual place of more modern day revelations of a tour caddy where you're just telling stories because, yeah. you know, as much as the book tells the stories, you have tons more. And yeah. so uh, not only should you be the bee, but through being the bee, you should create the flowers, new flowers, and you should capture. And so go ahead, reach out to me because I have a whole stage theory document. I can coach you on this as well on yeah. how to amplify, modify, and perpetuate uh, these great stories and lessons. And we'll take this to the next level. Does that sound fair? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one I want to sort of pitch that I've thrown to the Norman because I keep, you know, contacting Norman's like, uh, you know, publishing manager, okay, or his, his press manager who was a woman initially seemed a bit guarded. You know, I'd say, when's Greg coming to Australia? And she wouldn't give me an answer or whatever. I wanted to just say, 
thank you in person, you know, and, and shake his hand and say, thanks for doing the, um, go around her, reach out, out, go around her, go around her, reach out directly, keep on DMing them every single day, reach out and just say, Hey, because trust me, I did a $2 million deal with JLo in India. And when I finally went around the CAA agent who was blocking her because he wanted her to go to the movie premiere, not to India to do this wedding, I went around through a friend that knew her, got her on the cell phone. She had no idea I was trying to get a hold of her. And she was so grateful to me to have her first experience in India to make $2 million a private jet. So don't look, you have that desire that you must be what you can be. You know what it took to be a tour player and a tour caddy use that same attitude. You don't have to be so, uh, you know, uh, uh, down under polite, you know, be aggressive like a New York Jew and go (laughs) after it. All right. (laughs) What you're talking about? Like, you know, you got it. You know, it's my favorite. I got to jump jump to my training in clubhouse six, seven minutes from now. Reach out to me, David at dmelter.com. I'll give you the stage theory and coach you as well as help you get in touch with Greg and other people that would love to help you. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. Great author of revelations of a tour caddy, fast read, fun read, great lessons, especially if you're a golfer or a traveler, you will love it. I promise you. All right, Mikey, quick takeaway for the day. And then seven minutes, we'll be on clubhouse eight IG and the webinar over 50,000 people uh, registered today for EYOQ. You bring the questions. I'll bring the answers. Nice. Quick, quick, quick. Uh, Look, everything is energy. Focus on the energy of everything that you're doing, right? When we looked at both marks, whether it's physical energy with X2 or Mark here and David, the energy of him being upbeat and showing Norm in the book. And and Lisa talked about turning things around. Focus on the energy. We get so caught up in the physical of what we're doing. Focus on the spiritual, mental, emotional of what you're doing, the energy. Make sure you keep that increased, more likely to be successful. I love it. Thank you so much, Mikey. You're incredible. For me, it's credibility. I think we overlook all the time, whether it's Lisa, Mark, and the other Mark and David, you know, great credibility and integrity. And, you know, although emotional attachment means a lot, people bound emotion for logical reasons. The minute you lose credibility, you're down the deep hole of looking and being skeptical. And so many people oversell, back and sell, lie, manipulate, and cheat. And they're just lying to themselves. I used to get offended by people lying uh, to me. And then I realized, wait a second, they can't lie to me without lying to themselves. I actually feel bad for them. And I try to understand and pray for their happiness. And a lot of times people lie to themselves and then they lie to you because they're too afraid or they want to make you feel good or whatever. Don't have the need to be offended. Be credible like Lisa, Mark, Mark, and David. And you too will enjoy the consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential. All right, five minutes from now, everybody come join me, IG. Clubhouse, and of course, the web, and over 50,000 people on today. BYOQ, you can do it. David at D. Meltzer, if you want the stage theory, reach out to me for that document, the stage theory document. Capture, modify, amplify, and perpetuate your content, build your brand, strengthen your frequency, find your spectrum, and most importantly, clarify your message through lessons and stories. Come and learn some more lessons and stories with me in about five minutes. Thank you, team. Take care. Remember, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. See you in a minute.